0: Back to Sister Radio. My name is Akitami. Some of you might know me as the artist behind Sister Library, the first community-owned, community-run feminist library of South Asia. The library is all about celebrating women and just like the library, Sister Radio is a space for celebrating women. We talk to sisters from all walks of life. And we share an episode every full moon and every new moon. I'm so happy to share that we now have listeners in over 30 countries around the world. It is such an honor to have you in our community. If you're new here, a very big welcome to you. I hope you really enjoy your time here. And if you have been listening to us for some time now... Thank you so much for all the love and all the support that you have given to us. If you haven't already, please leave us a review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us reach more people. Also, share the podcast with your friends and your family. We hope to reach as many people as possible. Alright, I know I am a bit late. With this episode, I got a bit sick, so I am here to remind you to wear your mask and wash your hands and if you do not have to go outside, please stay indoors and take care of yourselves. It wasn't COVID, but I was seriously sick with the flu and I was super scared, so just a reminder here for everyone to... Be careful, all right. Okay, let us begin. I am extremely happy to have our guest, my sister Angela Miklanchochi Anderson, join us for today's episode. I want to start by congratulating her for successfully completing her PhD and being awarded the title of Doctor of Philosophy for her study in transpersonal psychology. As part of a study, in 2015, she initiated Indigenous Knowledge Gathering. Most recently, she initiated a forum to kick off trans-territorial citizenship series, a forum of creatives who model present and future models of citizenship, through lens of culture and the politics of personhood. I cannot wait to read her study. She is currently exploring the social impact of ancestral spiritual movements for community building and leadership. She has donned so many different hats, but has always strived to serve communities through culturally inclusive strategic development Art-Based Inquiry and Critical Psychology. Okay, let's start. Hi, sis. Welcome to Sister Radio. Thank you for
1: saying yes to this. Of course, it's my pleasure. Why would I not say yes to an opportunity to talk to you?
0: Sure. Thank you so much. You're the sweetest. (coughs) It's so wonderful to know you. Likewise, Aki. (laughs) And how is it there? How's the weather? How are you doing?
1: It's a a lovely, bright morning. Um, Not not too cold, but not too hot. It's nice fall weather in Mexico City. And I've noticed in the past 15 years that I've been in Mexico City, in and out, that the winters aren't as cold as they used to be. You know, times and climate are changing, but... Where my mother is at in California, it's snowing and cold. So, And they're only four hours away by plane.
0: Yeah, it's so strange to experience this change of how it used to be and what it is now in such a short period, how the climate has changed. But it's also strange to me how this entire conversation has become about individuals yeah. and consuming ethically and going vegan and not really holding the big corporations accountable who have caused the most damage and cause climate crisis?
1: Yeah, I think it's very sort of emblematic of what's happening all over the world in terms of how we communicate with one another. I was reading something the other day that talks about these cyclical changes, like the article was based in the context of the US. Every 80 years, this sort of cultural paradox that occurs, and we're seeing it now in terms of the election and so forth. But I think it can also be said in terms of globally what's happening, particularly as there has been a stronger tendency to neoliberalize different governments and ways of consumption, that we are losing a really valuable skill set of just sort of that curiosity and to be able to sit down and have conversation with one another and learn about where we're from, how we be, how things impact one another. Um, and like you said, it's like this focus on the individual. It limits our capacity to reach out be witness to other people's experiences and to be witness to what's really happening across our planet and then on top of it to really understand that that we can make change you know um, when we start working collectively with one another but I think that's the challenge that I think we all have to wrestle with now particularly in the next 10 to 15 years
0: Yes, I definitely experience this as it diminishing the possibility of people coming together mm-hmm. and bringing change. It's also very colonizing in the sense that how everything is homogenized and everything is mm-hmm. Americanized, the way we think and our culture and our everyday practices, but also in terms of policy making. It is really suffocating because there is no subjectivity, there is no paying attention to different experiences. And I think it's even more so in the web sphere where we are surrounded by people who are just like us and who speak similar language like we do than in the real world because in the real world, we do have to coexist with people who have different philosophies and ideologies and who have a very different way of looking at life. But in the web sphere, we tend to surround ourselves with people who think
1: and talk and look exactly like us and it is scary. Yeah and I think there's a tendency or a movement to have these utopic conversations around our ideals where we tend to gravitate or put ourselves in these bubbles with like-minded people which I think is important because I think we all do need refuge of different types to preserve our humanity and ways of being but at the same time it's to understand that we're all part of this life cycle, this, these living ways, and that we do have to step out of those bubbles. Like I reached out to somebody in my circle who put a social media post that not necessarily that I was in disagreement from a value perspective, but from a political perspective, I didn't share. And rather than attacking the person, I just sort of, you know, shared that my position which was contrary to theirs. And then, you know, explained a little bit of why I held the position that I had. And rather than judging them, it was just sort of trying to create this space of like, well, why don't you listen to this other perspective? And unfortunately, they didn't respond back to me, but I felt good about my action because one, I wasn't maintaining my silence. I wasn't trying to judge them and I wasn't trying to create a space to block or silence them as well. You know, even if it's uncomfortable and it's sad to sort of see some of the discourse that even if while people are trying to maintain their thoughts and their values, sometimes they do it in a way that's very hurtful. And so I think making sort of those little movements among people who we call our friends, I think for me is a practice I'm trying to enact in these times just sort of to change the way of how we engage with one another and that regardless of where I may stand I still I'm going to respect you regardless of what your beliefs are yes
0: I totally agree with what you said and it is so important for us to know and understand that different people have different values based on where they come from and their perspectives on world Mm -hmm. so the whole point of being around people who think differently and experience the world differently is for us to inspire critical thinking I feel but that is not really happening more and more which is very concerning I say this because values are not just values that are personal, even though they may look like just personal values and beliefs and norms, but they are also global in the sense that uh, a lot of things that we practice and things that that our policies are made on are things that Mm -hmm. were brought to us from the global north. And uh, even though on paper it looks great, but we are practicing and uplifting ways of life that are different from ours. And as indigenous peoples, it is a very Mm -hmm. difficult place to exist. Um, When we are actually looking at reclaiming our spaces and relearning our ways, but we have this overarching frame which has been designed for everything to be homogeneous and mm-hmm. and it's not just in one space but it's more global in that so then what is the difference between having global values and global norms yeah. and colonizing value systems it's very conflicting if you look at it
1: No, I think that's what happens is that global powers or dominant agencies come in and they manipulate and appropriate among local or indigenous spaces where it's not free. It's in a form of enslavement. It's a form of extraction and so forth. And so I think for me, it's not so much norms, but it's sort of how do we get back to values and how do we have a conversation about how do we honor and protect human dignity and life in general, I think with a greater conversation about what does it take to keep our our planet in balance so that it can be sustainable, the possibilities are out there. I think when we re-examine how do we place value on living, how do we place value on our relationships with one another? And I think what unfortunately happens is that humanity has had a tendency over time, fortunately, to place judgment on different peoples and spaces that, well, my life is more valuable than and this person's life in another place in the world. And that's when we have inequity and some severe and horrible um, injustices. Yeah, I think it's this tendency to want to, like you say, homogenize, streamline. They talk about efficiency and effectiveness when I think we, it's like a very short term game that policy, global policy and even national policy is making rather than looking at if we make an investment in more qualitative, human-based ways of thinking and researching um, about our needs and our desires that could probably change into longer term benefits for all. Yeah, and and, and I think it's also sort of letting go power to really trust um, local knowledges and technologies to do the work of caring and protecting without the intrusion of some of these models that take away local knowledges and and technologies. So I think it's happening and that's where I try to deposit my hope and my energies at Time is how to find stories of resilience among people who, they're not the policymakers, right? They're not the people who run corporations. They're the people who work to to sustain their families and get by sort of paycheck to paycheck. But they still carry something that's very vital to what it is that we make up as a community, as a locality, as a city, and and so forth. And that's where I try to derive my hope and and try to share it in different ways, just as, as we're doing now, that they can hopefully trickle up to some other spaces of power. Yes,
0: Beautiful. I feel like it's so important for us to acknowledge and accept that it is from the grassroots that values emerge and not from academia and not from policies and social media or these spaces of power. We have to accept and allow for emergence of knowledge and emergence of culture organically from the grassroots. I don't know when that's
1: going to happen. When we share these stories in terms of celebration and then as, as an invitation, um, you know, my hope is that people on the outside, for lack of better way to frame it, you know, will be inspired to sort of get involved and not in terms of like, oh, I need to help people, but more that they see sort of the reciprocal value in their own life to re-engage sort of where they are at in this whole system of production, sort of how do we share with one another you know, I can't help to reflect on my privileges when I am doing work with people who may have not had the similar experiences and opportunities. And it's not to feel bad for my accomplishments or that I have to give away everything that I have, but it's sort of, it's coming to terms with how can I share so that we we all feel good about who we are as people. And it seems really simple, but I think it's really complex and difficult for many of us. It's so great you're doing this work. It's vital for people to understand
0: and realize that we can come together we can organize and we can look after each other even if we are not supported by a larger funding organization and we can stand in solidarity and we can support each other even without a policy level change it's so vital for us to know this and celebrate
1: it i think we forget about the value of that and, you know, like you said, the best of our ability sometimes are the grassroots organizations that are available to us, regardless of whatever challenges or paradigms that they have to operate in. Sometimes the best of our ability is scraping whatever we can week by week among people that we know. <laughs> in small donations or, and I'm sure you've done this as well in IP, who take of their own resources to, to share with others. And it's really simple, but but I think as a, as a culture, we've made it so hard to just try. If somebody's in need, what can we do to just try to help them? And that doesn't mean that it's even the people that need help are always going to be able to fully appreciate or whatever because there's so many systemic issues that our communities have to deal with it's an effort that i think helps create some balance and the order and the order of things
0: Yeah, that's so true. I feel like people have actually given up on the idea of being a participant in a movement or being in solidarity. Instead, everybody wants to assume the position of a leader of any given movement and want to make the movement about them. And that, in my opinion, is so far from the idea of building bridges. The whole idea of having diverse people in a movement is so... So that you know there is access and there is opportunities and and there is um, exchange because it's lonely not having access and not having privileges. A very lonely space to be in and the idea is to build a bridge where we can share and we can understand each other and the resources can be shared and knowledge can be shared and culture can be shared but that's so difficult to come across and every time there is an articulation by the people who are disenfranchised, it is always looked that as us being angry it's a really weird
1: space yeah i don't know if it's anger but i think I think more the political discourse is enshrouded with anger. And I think there's this judgment that people who are marginalized are there because they want to be there. And so there's not enough of critical reflexivity in terms of understanding people's positionalities. And that creates a judgment that I think more provokes anger among the people who are potential sharers rather than among the people who need to ask. I think there's a lot of fear that is circulating around, particularly because your jobs, jobs are scarce. You know, there are with agencies that have the the ability to give food, you know, sometimes even then there's certain requirements or stipulations. So I think in the North, at least, I think they've professionalized some of these systems of care that create sort of this fear and further disempowers communities to ask and to advocate for what their actual needs are. I agree with you so
0: much
1: and I have personally gone through that
0: journey of really looking at that shame and facing it and examining it questioning it and why I felt it and then again like you know being faced by it again and again and again even with the library when I started two years back people did not want me to be asking they kept telling me I was Mm -hmm. begging them the Notion that this is a space that we founded together was not understood by so-called feminist artists. They sent me videos titled How to Be Polite because they thought it was impolite of a native woman to be asking for funding to build a library, which is... (laughs) Mm-hmm. It's bizarre, I know. They're still trapped in that idea that mm-hmm. the wealth that they have is their own. And that notion that it was not divine intervention that they have this wealth and we don't, does not exist. And it's a shame.
1: Yeah, and that's why I'm I, like I'm trying to rethink and just sort of the discourse, or even how to make the ask, right? Because you're, like you said, there is no right or wrong. It's simply there's a need, and I'm asking you to help fulfill the need. It's really simple, and if you can. Beautiful, if you can't, that's okay. Maybe another day. And and sort of the power in that moment is is like I said, there's a reciprocal moment of reflection. There's a reciprocal moment of asking, well, what am I what are my capacities within this moment? Whether it's financially, whether it's time, whether it's some type of, of labor of care. There's a lot of possibilities. And when somebody who isn't able to, it's not necessarily, I think, our jobs or are, are the way to sort of to deconstruct why. But it's just to keep moving on. And, and I think that's, you know, why I admire sort of your tenacity and your compassion is because you just, it's very natural, right? That's what I'm hoping during these times is that we can activate and generate ways of sharing so that we don't have to carry on any burden or trauma of the conditions that put us in that scenario in the first place.
0: Mm. I believe that work has to be done on both sides. People in privilege are very aware of yes. our lack of power and our lack of privilege. Mm-hmm. It's not hidden from their sight our needs. And especially since the lockdown, especially during this time, it's been devastating for so many of us. And to not want to change things and to not want to give during this time it you know there has to be something wrong
1: with people yeah i i think it's an illness um you know and i think a lot of people from a, at least in a spiritual perspective i see that those are that's a form of spirit loss where people who have resources who can't see the need or can't let go. They're functioning from a a place of fear, of a place of trying to protect their own because they are not comfortable with uncertainty. And obviously they have committed themselves to the neoliberal project, right? To the colonial project of, well, I have to take care of myself first. And so how am I going to help other people? And to me, that's a very sad and tragic condition of spirit loss where we lose faith and confidence in in the moment of now, because tomorrow is not promised to anybody. Each each day is a new day. And although that we do things, I think, with the intention of hope and generating for future generations, I think we can only do that when we're able to understand that our actions today and the wealth that we each have is a condition of, of the relations that we have with one another. And so I'm only going to be as abundant in my well-being, in my wealth, in my health, as long as I'm able to be um, abundant and sharing with others. I think there's just a super disconnect, and, and I agree with you. You know, I think there needs to be work and reflection, and not to necessarily change the person, but to sort of create that space of reciprocity so that our layers, whatever layers that's, that's protecting their entitlement can be peeled away so that they can really come back to the center of the heart that can awaken sort of why, why it's important to share, not only because somebody is hungry, but because life is precious. And when I invest in your life, you also invest in my life. And that helps sort of create this, um, this ripple effect of, of balance and, and healthiness in our, in our world in general. Exactly. People think that they're going to leave a fortune for their children and
0: their grandchildren, but that does not ensure that they will have a great future. Because you might live in a palace, but if everything is crumbling
1: around you, then it means nothing. Exactly. But, you know, we started talking about climate change and the seasons a little bit at the beginning. And I think that's one of the the valuable lessons we have right now is, you know, I'm sure in Bombay is here in Mexico City, the quality of air impacts everybody, right? The quality of water and access to water impacts everybody. And those basic basic elements of life and it impacts us all you can't buy your way out of that Mm -hmm.
0: and yet we have here so many technological advancements and research being put into installing apparatus like filters in cars and homes of people with resources instead of really looking at the radical cause of the problem.
1: Yeah, I feel like it's, it's, yeah, it's a way of bypassing truth, right? It's a way of bypassing responsibility. A filter, it might provide you some comfort in the short term, but it's not going to save your life. Even if we live in a bubble, that's not really a great standard of, of living to to block yourself off from the rest of the world. Yeah, we could, I think we could get into these really amazing sci-fi conversations, but it goes back to sort of what are our values and what kind of visions do we have for the future? What kind of relationships do, do we want to have with one another? And if we just want to look at marginalized communities as objects who are going to help create wealth for ourselves, that's a problem. Um, and in, in some ways, I'd rather have that be very clear and transparent where people then on the margins can organize and create their own communities that are more equitable and more, more just. They do have that power because they have they can occupy space. They can move in, in a movement. You know, when we can have those conversations, that's when we get to what are my real possibilities and potential. And I think you demonstrate this all the time with how you are working with people and you're creating sort of your own auto-sufficient communities, maybe you don't have like resources that are going to last you into the next hundred years, but you have resources in the moment that create vitality and care that, that do not have a price. Um, and that, Thank you. I feel
0: so seen right now. Thank you so much for acknowledging my work and for celebrating it. I'm pretty used to doing my own thing in a very small corner and then just doing it without anyone paying a lot of notice. But there's work happening. So it feels really nice that you've noticed and you
1: value it, and I'm thankful for this. It's really special. You know, I'm, I'm really inspired by our conversation from the perspective of, how do we create more think tanks around sort of the human condition. You know, I've, I've been working with this concept of transterritorial citizenship that's not just about citizenships in terms of being a part of, of a nation state, but it transcends that in terms of how do we also include the territory of our psyche, the territory of our feelings, the territories of our past, the territories of histories, the territory of, sp- of space, the territory of our relations, and so on when we think about how we embody citizenship in whatever space that we're occupying and i and i think there's tremendous amount of possibilities when we ask those questions so how do i do that and and care for myself at the same time i don't necessarily have that solution at the moment but i'm comforted that i'm asking those questions <laughs> and i and i do feel confident and have faith that i will be led to where i need to be <laughs>
0: And I'm confident that you'll be guided and it will mm-hmm. be something so amazing. It will be spectacular. It will be so great. Yeah. We've been talking almost an hour and I still have to ask you questions that I usually ask my guests. <laughs> Can you tell me what the COVID situation is like in Mexico City?
1: Um, I think in general, um, it's it's probably reflective of, of most places in the world. Um, The numbers are growing. There's not a lot of transparency, I think, in terms of how it's impacting people's lives and what the actual impact will be on people's needs. Things have sort of in general been activated. Um, You see people selling in in informal markets, Um, you know, restaurants are doing their part and, you know, and enforcing protocols and so forth. But I, I'm sort of disappointed that there's not everything the, the, the discourse and the conversation sort of how do we how do we need to meet the needs just to get people back working? And there's not really a conversation about sort of well, where is their need and, and what has sort of been left attended to? And it's really the responsibility of communities and individuals to take the initiative to care for themselves.
0: But, you know, like the thing with COVID has been that it's like, it's so urgent, the need for people to get back to work and make monies for their families so that they feel um, some form of, um, um, the word I'm looking for? Security? Yeah, security. So Because everything seems to be falling apart right now. Yeah, that's what's pushing people to get back to work. But that's not a good space to exist in at all the only thing that makes your life worth living is having some money in hand. it's not a good life we need to really reflect on it collectively
1: yeah um yeah i agree i think and i and i think like it's happening all over the world i participated in a talk with um, some indigenous grandmothers a few weeks ago talking about mental health and sort of the level of fear and anxiety that's happening among peoples um, due to sort of this, I think, wealth-based model of of care. Also, um, you know, just sort of how in the world we've neglected to kind of look at Spaces where there's been success in handling COVID, and you know, I think in Africa, one of the the grandmothers was talking about there's just been tremendous success. But we don't hear about that because that distorts the world's perception of what Africa is or what countries in Africa are. I think too, it's also reflective that the media is very positioned to only look at negative or look at deficits. And my hope too during these times, like in why I, I appreciate talking with family like you, is you know, how do we uplift our stories of resilience. And it's not that they're perfect models, but they're people and communities attempting to do something in a good way, in a way of caring, um, in a way of consciousness that that uplifts us at least to, to where we are.
0: Yes, that's such important work. I'm so glad you're joining me in conversation today. I'm going to ask you a few more questions. There are no problems. Can you tell me how your childhood was like and where did you grow up?
1: Um, I grew up in the Central Valley of California. It's a predominantly agriculture area but my grandparents were were migrant workers and so they met in the in the Central Valley where their family, migrated to to work in the fields. And my father, he was adopted so the genealogy work and research I could do. His family, too, were migrants to the Central Valley, I think, in response to sort of agriculture and dairy type of stuff. But I I grew up in a small town. My parents were divorced. So I grew up in two towns. One was really, really small, predominantly migrant workers, Spanish-speaking immigrants. And the other was a little bit bigger, but not too much bigger. Yeah. And I'm by racial, so... Mexican and white. I grew up exposed to to Spanish but speaking predominantly English and sort of just being very aware of the sadness around assimilation because there were things I wanted to know and learn about my family and its history that my grandparents and and relatives weren't always prepared or or willing to talk about. Overall, though, I mean, we weren't well off but we had what we needed. You know, my grandma taught me sort of the power of our family networks, and so if whenever I needed to do something, for school and I didn't have the resources, she would organize an enchilada sale or something and I would always have what I needed. And so that made, you know, created confidence that I could pursue the things that I wanted to um, and not always necessarily have to worry if there was enough to do so at the University of Notre Dame exposed me to Catholic social teaching and I got to travel to Haiti and to Chile and I le- got to learn about liberation theology. And when I graduated, I went to Bolivia. I don't know how to explain it um, more than sort of this Cosmic mythological experience of being in an indigenous state and and sort of exposed to an indigenous cosmology that awoken to me how my Catholicism inhibited sort of my self worth and so when I was in Bolivia is when I started to question my religiosity my spirituality and thanks to a few other fortitious mo- moments of reading literature it made me question and it gave me confidence in the questions that I was having about myself worth and about sort of wanting to embrace a more more earth-based spirituality and just sort of one thing led to the other and my life changed completely
0: (laughs) wow that sounds both fascinating and scary coming from christianity and reclaiming the ancient ways and the traditional ways and reclaiming indigenous spirituality that's such a journey yeah it's amazing and so how did you Start with the path that you are on. When did you decide that you would be an academic and a scholar? When did that happen?
1: Um, Well, it's interesting. Like I think as a young person, to me, going to the university was my way of getting away from home and, and allowing myself to have new experiences and also sort of taking me under the shadow of some of the more rough family, family dynamics that I was experiencing. But I think once I graduated from college and then my master's and became a, a quote unquote professional, I soon realized that I didn't feel like I was making an impact in the world. Although I had an amazing colleagues, you know, intelligent, bright people who I think have really good intentions to be change makers. There were so many limitations due to the politics and the culture of the environments that we worked in. I mean, then also I just sort of felt inside that it was all sort of a facade. And so about that same time is when I started questioning my Catholicism and my religiosity in general. And I, I made a prayer. I asked for a guide. And that's when I met my madrina, my, my spiritual guide, who invited me into Indigenous ceremony. And that's when my life changed and so when my life changed i didn't fit in i didn't feel comfortable in my professional role in identity and so for me pursuing a doctorate was a space of refuge for me to sort of break down what it is it that i was experiencing and what do i want to do with my talents and, and my curiosities in this life so that's what brought me to the academia in the doctoral role but i like to call myself a scholar practitioner Amazing. Please tell us a bit more about your research. Um, well, my research focuses on the experience of 13 Mexican and Mexican-Americans who are reclaiming their Mesoamerican spirituality. Basically, my work over the past nine years has sort of revealed a theoretical construct that I have named the transterritorial ancestral spirituality, And also my work is really about sort of giving a space for an imperfect conversation about what it means to be colonized person of color, reclaiming um, indigenous ways of knowing. First step in trying to ask those questions, but first and foremost affirming um, our experiences and validating our experiences as people of color um, with, the, with the real need and desire to, to reclaim indigeneity from a spiritual perspective. So that is it in a nutshell.
0: <laughs> ah, so
1: good.
0: I'm so excited for your thesis. I feel like it's such an important work right now when so many of us are looking at reclaiming language and ceremonies and practices and trying to find our ways back. I think it's so important to have this writing,
1: and I'll be so happy if you send me a copy to the library, too. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, Once it's published, I'm happy to send a copy to you. And I'd love to talk to you, too, about maybe to get your input. Wonderful. I'll be happy to. I'll be very happy
0: to. All right. Do you have any advice for young
1: indigenous women who are looking at getting into this space? Whoa. Um, well, I think I have a, a prayer more than anything else is to believe in their medicine and to believe in their self. And I think believing in your medicine is making sure your medicine is always available to you. So going into academic life is not abandoning sort of your traditional and medicinal ways. And sometimes our medicine is staying connected to our community of sisters. Sometimes it's, it's lighting up our smudge and making sure that when we sit down and read a book or we sit down and type a paper that the the sacred fire is present. I think it's also being very transparent in our writing and our voice. In my writing, in my academic voice, I try to sort of be as much as who I can be in that moment. And so if I read something and it makes me angry, or confused, I transpire that feeling into the pages that I write or that paragraph. And I say, so-and-so's writing really makes me angry as an Indigenous person because X, Y, Z. To me, that those moments were really empowering. And even now, when I look back, I was like, oh, I'm being so dramatic <laughs> in the moment. It was really necessary because my feelings are important. The academic experience isn't something removed from our bodies. Our bodies and our embodied knowing is, is, is very much a part of how we're experiencing, producing knowledge um, moving forward. And so that's my advice. And the medicine is is in our palabra, it's in our word. And so, yeah, just stay true to their medicine and that being there, they're being medicine to, to themselves and to their communities and that what they will produce in sort of the exchanges they have in the classroom and conferences and so forth and ultimately in their work can transcend in, in a lot of different ways. Ah, That's such wonderful advice for us indigenous peoples to even like
0: exist in a space like the academia with the awareness that research has been the tool that has been used historically to eliminate our peoples. It is so hard to do any kind of like work in the academia and it feels like you are talking to me directly right now (laughs) because I struggle with this. But it's true. Our words are medicine and we need this medicine and our community needs this medicine. So I'm so thankful to you for giving this advice. It's so precious.
1: Since do you have any book recommendations for our listeners? I don't have the specific titles in mind, but the people who come to mind, my hermana, Ana Lara, also I mean, obviously Linda Tiawe Smith, I think Joy Hargrove. Any indi- female Indigenous poet, I highly recommend. Um, I think there's so much knowledge in poetry that often opens the gates or creates the, the bridge that we need. Great recommendations.
0: Thank you so much. Linda's work comes up all the time in the podcast. Linda, auntie, if you're listening to this podcast, we love you so much. Thank you for your work. And sis, I will send you some poetry from the South and I hope you like them. Hey, Do you have a shout-out that you'd like to make to
1: a grassroots organization or to a mutual aid group or something? I give a shout-out to you, Aki, for your work and your heart and resilience. Just keep doing what you're doing. To have trust in the discomfort and the uncertainty, um, that great spirit will lead us. Thank you so much. I appreciate
0: it. Last question, how does one become a sister (sighs) supporter?
1: I listening. I think just listening and asking to be a listener, I think goes a long way. Yes,
0: I totally agree. It's so simple. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have everything. Can you please tell us
1: where we can find you and connect with you on social media? Um, well, I have a a Twitter account, Angela Meatlan Sochi Anderson. I'm on LinkedIn as Angela Meatlan Sochi Anderson. Like Facebook and Instagram are more kind of personal, um, but I'm happy to share, you know, I'm Angela Anderson Guerrero on Facebook and I'm Ojo Ojo on Instagram. And my email, if anyone wants to reach out is meetlanzochi at gmail.com. And yeah, I'm always here to to be as supportive as I can.
0: Yes, we're done. We have everything. Thank you so much (laughs) for joining me today. It's always so great to talk to you. I'm always smiling. I have a huge smile on my face every time I talk to you. It feels so amazing to be in connection with you and in community with you. I'm so grateful for all the work that you do and just that you exist in this Aww. world.
1: Thank you. Oh, thank you Aki and thank you for just creating this these compassionate spaces listening and the feeling is mutually trust in my sisterhood and my sisters are your sisters as well yeah keep doing doing what you what you're doing and being who you are sweet
0: yes I'll always remember that thank you so much and good luck for your defense and I'm sure it's going to be so great it's going to be amazing
1: and we'll meet again so soon yes we will yes we will (laughs)
0: you just heard a conversation between me Tami and my sister angela Matlanchochi. her socials are in the show notes make sure you follow her if you'd like to support sister library the crowdfunder link is also in the show notes please make sure you check it out if you'd like to drop us a word our email is ilovereadingwomen at gmail.com you can also tweet at us at Sister Library, or write to us on Instagram at sister.library. Sister Radio is supported by Pro Helvetia India, the Swiss Art Council. And music for Sister Radio is composed by my dear sister Shasha Patel. Before I go... I want to wish all of my Himalayan indigenous kin a very happy Udawli and also to everyone celebrating. All right, I will be back again soon with another episode. Until then, keep celebrating women. Bye.